Bienvenidos to a special season-ending episode of El Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, your hosts answer your questions about the Mestizo Church, themes from the season, an embarrassing story, maybe a conversation about In the Heights, and we tell you what's coming next on the Mestizo Podcast. So sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Elizabeth, saludos, ¿cómo estás? I'm fine, how are you doing? I'm good, man. We have been busy, you and I. We have been from conference to conference to conference. We have been at AETH Bienal, the Encuentro. Uh, that was both the Redet group and the overall AETH community. Then you and I were at HTI. Did I miss anything? Are there other conferences or events that you've been at? Well, there are conferences that I'm getting ready for, but um, no, we have been busy because the, the whole AETH piece took uh, several days. Yeah. And it was wonderful. I mean, we were journeying with people. It wasn't like a regular, you know, conference. It was a journey with yeah. people. It was yeah. phenomenal. Why don't you tell everyone what AETH stands for, for those of us listener, our listeners that don't know what that is? It's A-E-T as in Tom H. AET, Asociación para la Educación Teológica Hispana. Hispanic Theological Association, or the Association for Hispanic Theological Education. Yeah, it's a network that we're both part of. You serve uh, as part of AETH. You want to tell everyone your role there, the exact title? It's a little longer, so I want to make sure we get it right. Yeah, we had to make sure we got it on my card. I'm the coordinator for the network of the um, theological entities. There so this podcast is a theological entity, right? We we learn right. theology right. And, and a lot of different things through this podcast, different than, you know, like going to school or something like that. Yeah. So we have been at AETH's Encuentro, which we gather with th tons of theologians, scholars, faculty members, administrators pastors. from different pastors. Yeah, you name it. People that are in Hispanic theological education, that's the place to be. And we had the opportunity to be a part of that conference. We were also at the HTI conference, the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Uh, Elizabeth was serving as an instructor. I was there actually as a student this time, had the privilege to enjoy it as a student. That took two weeks. That was spread over, over two weeks. And so that was a lot of time. I have an embarrassing story to confess before, <laughs> before we go into admin. I have You're to gonna say tell something. I'm going to tell, tell the audience. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm going to tell the audience about what happened at the AETH Encuentro. And uh, yeah, I'm going to confess one of the more embarrassing moments of my life. Maybe the most embarrassing moment of my life, though, though. No one except Elizabeth and a handful of people even know that it was an embarrassing moment in life. Most people don't know what I'm talking about. But a few months ago, I'll tell you the story here and then we'll actually get into the podcast, y'all. But a few months ago, Elizabeth and I were recording an episode of the Mestizo podcast. And after the episode, we, we usually after the episode, we stop, we chat, we kind of talk about what worked, what didn't work, what we want to change or edit, those kinds of things. Well, after the episode, Elizabeth says to me, mira. We are a couple months from the Encuentro for AETH. Y quiero que me hagas un rap. I want you to wrap up the conference for us. No, that's not what I said. I said, I want you to do a rap for the conference. There you go. So, so we already have different what versions you understood, of the story. <laughs> what you understood and what I said are two different things. That's the problem. That's the problem. I so, want so... you to do a rap. There you go. Go ahead, brother. So, so we got two versions of the story here, but... but I heard it and she said, you know, at the end of the conference, quiero que me haga un rap. 
we want to talk about the different themes that come up at the conference, et cetera, et cetera. And I say, sure, claro, claro, yo me envuelvo. I'm already like, going to be there. Easy. That's an easy thing for me to do. Easy. Well, well so llega, llega la conferencia, llega el día de abrir la conferencia. We're there at the opening of the conference. Oh, wait, and... wait, wait. A, 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 a couple of days before, I confirm with you. Oh, yes. That you are all set with the rap. <laughs> Y'all already said, know yeah, where this is I going. I got the rap coming. Y'all already know where this is going. So Elizabeth, she confirms she has one of her staff members at at Ayeth call me a day later and say, "Hey, so just to make sure this is what's going to happen, here's how the agenda works." Yada yada yada. We we get and and I say the whole time I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm good. I got it. I, I'll I might improvise a little bit and go based on what's happening in the conference. We'll figure it out." And uh, we we get to the first day. Elizabeth opens the conference. She's really good at this. This is what she does. She, she builds excitement and everything else. And she says, she says during the opening of the conference, she says, Ay, vamos a tener un rapero con nosotros. And I kid Uno you not. Nuestros. And I kid you not. One of our own. Uh, Karen Figueroa, she's the dean over at Chet. She writes me a message. This is over Zoom. She writes me a message and she says, do you know who the rapero is going to be? Is it you? And I kid you not, I go, no, I have no idea who the rapper's going to be. It ain't me. They didn't tell me to rap. I still have not yet figured out what's going on. So the conference was over several days. We get to the last day. There still hasn't been a rapper. I'm supposed to do, in my mind, a wrap-up of the conference. So I've been taking good notes. I've been figuring out what I'm going to say. We get to the very last moment, and I get called to do the, the rap. And so I get up. I wrap up some of the major themes. I talk about what we need to continue to pray about, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And I, I pray and I close. But wait, give, give it a pause. You get up and you start this speech. And I'm like, what's the brother doing? Is he doing an intro to this rap? And then you decide to pray. And Aracelis and I, who's, who's leading with me, we're like, you know, this is Zoom, so we got to look like we're praying. But the two of us are wondering, like, what's he doing? Is he going to do the rap after the prayer? All right, the brother's going to do the rap after the prayer, man. That's fine. It's okay. It's his moment. Let him pick it the way he wants. And you finish, and you're done. And done. she and I are looking at each other on the screen like, okay, he didn't do this. <laughs> so we're having to cover for what didn't take place. And I'm texting you just texting as me. it ends. Where is what happened to my rap, brother? And you called me. I, so Asorao. Asorao. You called Asorao. You were like, man, I messed this up. I knew that you were Asorao when you called me so fast. You have never, ever called me so fast. I didn't know it was happening. It was one of those, you know, that old comedy skit, the Who's On First? Remember that mm -hmm. one, the black and white skit? It was an exact moment of that. So this was my rap. He, did, he does a wrap up. Yeah. Of the the whole he didn't do time. a rap, brother. That's not a rap. I didn't say a wrap up. I said a rap. The whole time I thought you meant to rap. I haven't rapped. So so for, for the audience, somewhere in an episode earlier this you're season, fried. that episode. You're fried. You're getting married. You're <laughs> fried. You can't think of anything else. That's That's what it is. So earlier this season, I said that my first ministry, the first thing I was involved with was musica urbana, rap, reggaeton, that kind of thing. And that's where you got the, but I haven't done that in years. But here's what I did for the sake of, of the audience and, 
and as penance to you, Elizabeth, and to those who are waiting for a rap from me. I cut a little snippet from one of my old songs, and I thought Ooh. I'd give you all a taste of what that sounded like. Now, it's not it's not live, but you'll get the idea. Here we go. One, three. <laughs> All right. See, that's what I was expecting. Just a little taste. Just a little taste. Shout out to Travi Joe. That's on his album. You can look up Travi Joe. The song is called Legacy. I'll put it in the notes if you want to hear the rest of the song. But it gives you night now. I can't do that at all these days. Me quedo sin aire, me oficio ahí mismo, me caigo al piso. I can't do that. I can't do that at all. But if you want to know the stuff I used to do, well, there you go. We got to get you back. We got to get that part of you back. You cannot lose that part of yourself. You and Agustin are both trying that. Well, hey, audience, welcome to a mixed space. For those que ni se sienten ni de aquí ni de allá, the former rappers, the theologians, the pastors, we're all here in this space. Even those of us who may not have the skill anymore, though, Elizabeth and others want to encourage me to do that. If you haven't been listening with us all season, hey, don't forget to go back. There have been plenty of rich conversations. Elizabeth, you got a favorite one? Oh, my goodness. They're all my favorites. I mean, especially this season, every every person we had on with us just brought a new layer of everything that we were discussing. It was phenomenal. Yeah, we, we leveled up for sure this season. We leveled up. Man, I can't say that I have a favorite either, but I have some recommendations for you. If you haven't listened to our conversation with brother Dr. Willie Jennings, make sure to listen to that. Uh, mm -hmm. Sandra Maria Van Opstel, Dr. Daniel uh, Rodriguez, uh, Orlando Crespo, they all brought it. So make sure you check out uh, the, the episodes from earlier this season. And if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts, this really does help us, y'all. So if you want to help the Mestizo Podcast, here's something you can do. A real practical, simple way that you can support what Elizabeth and I are doing. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or if you have an iPhone, go to the podcast app on Apple, subscribe to the Mestizo Podcast, and then leave us a review. Those reviews help our podcast to be shown. And, and here's what else it does. When we go to other ministries and we say, hey, you should be supporting what we're doing in the Mestizo Podcast. It helps us to show, look how big the community is. Look who's listening. Look who's a part of our community. Here's where our nuestra gente, this is where we're gathering. So if you haven't done so already, do us that favor. Leave us a review. Tell us your story and your testimony. I actually have some testimonies to, to share. Elizabeth, you mind if I share some testimonies here? Go for it. Let me share the first one here. Uh, give a rose here to nuestra hermana, Dr. Elizabeth Conde-Fraser. Hi, this uh, message is for Dr. Elizabeth Frazier, uh, Matiso Podcast. My name is Hector Salcido, Fullerton, California. Uh, Miss Elizabeth, Dr. Elizabeth, I just want to say thank you for listening to your show. Appreciate you. I don't know if you remember me. Uh, Latin America Bible Institute in the city of La Puente, California. You're my professor. You bless me. You continue to bless me. I'm a pastor in the city of Fullerton, working with uh, a multi-ethnic group as well, and other pastors with different ethnicities. 
uh, working on racial conciliation. Just for life, just say thank you, man, for everything that you do. You're a blessing. Continue doing what you do. Thank you. Bye. That's a surprise. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Do you remember that? Yes. Yes, of course I do. I need his, I, I need you to go back and give me that number again. Brother Salcedo. Oh, my goodness. So great to hear that he's pastoring. Yeah. This is wonderful to hear that voice. You didn't tell me, you didn't say anything to me. Thank I you for that it. surprise. I kept it a secret, but you deserve to hear it. I, I, I think his gratitude is, is, is rightly placed. We also have a pastor from Chicago, Pastor Ramon Rivera, who sent us this note. This is not an audio recording, so I'm going to read it to you, okay? But he wrote this. He said, as a young boy growing up in Chicago, I knew I was Puerto Rican, but part of me felt disconnected from this identity. I was not fluent in Spanish and had never seen the pride-invoking beauty of the island in person. So many of us are in that boat. Uh, this made me feel as though I was not an authentic Puerto Rican, almost like a bandwagoner of my ethnicity. I had elements in my life that affirmed my culture, like a love for the food, rhythm in my feet, and a deep love for family. As I've grown in life and in my faith, this tension of why I was made to be Puerto Rican grew stronger. I didn't have the words for it and honestly felt embarrassed to even start a conversation around growing in my ethnic identity. It was not until experiencing other Latino men, I'm going to add, and women, of great faith with a love for their ethnicity and their people that I've started the journey of growing in my Puerto Ricanness. Meeting Professor Emanuel Padilla, I got to see an example of theological intelligence and a level of authenticity in his Puerto Rican identity. Finding the Mestizo podcast begins to give language to the many things I felt as a third-generation Latino. To have a brother like Emmanuel and the valuable resource of the Mestizo podcast building a gospel and Latino identity has been an answer to prayers I didn't even know I had. Shout out to Pastor Ramon Rivera and that testimony of, of recapturing. Uh, of taking off la, la ropa anglosajón and recapturing something that is beautiful and important. Elizabeth, you got really, something about that? That's what's really beautiful about these testimonies is that we get to hear the voices of those who are listening and we get to hear their stories. Thank you for your stories, folks. Thank you for um, being a voice of the Mestizo podcast. Without your stories and your voices, um, the Mestizo podcast wouldn't mean anything. It's it's your journey and how you uh, speak about your journey. And thank you so much to our brother for sharing his journey. It's very hard to be third generation. It's very hard to be third generation. It's very difficult to be in the diaspora. Um, I was speaking to a friend from Puerto Rico who was a teacher and uh, she teaches young people there. And some of them are... Um, learning to understand what their diaspora cousins are going through. And uh, she helps to facilitate the discussion. She's uh, using the Mestizo podcast to do that. But helping people in our country of origin, whether it's Puerto Rico, Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, helping people in our country of origin understand what it means to be in diaspora. And yeah. um, it's just really great. I'm so happy that this brother has found a way to uh, begin a journey of definition, because that's really important. And to everyone who's on that journey, be yourself. Amen. Amen. 
I got one last word to say, and then we're going to get into the questions because one of the questions is about that diaspora experience. We're going to talk about it in a moment. But one last thing I want to say to y'all that are supporting, listening, that are with us in this recapturing, in this definition making, uh, one last thing as an encouragement to you. If you want to continue to support the Mestizo podcast, you can subscribe like I mentioned, but there's other one, one other way that you can support. You can actually go to worldoutspoken.com right now. There's a big button that says give now. If you click on that and scroll down, you're going to see that there's a specific fund that you can designate funds to. You can support directly what we do in podcasts to continue to expand. Look, we've had some great speakers this season. We've done some great things. Y'all want this to continue. Help us to, to gain momentum as we continue to elevate the resources, as we continue to bring on other experts, as we continue to build this community together. You can do that by supporting the show financially. All right, let's say we get into some questions. What do you think, Elizabeth? Let's go for it. All right, our first question is from another Chicago brother. His name is Hugo Perez. He actually called in to leave us this question, and it actually connects back to this definition thing that we spoke of with the testimony from Ramon Rivera. Let's hear the voicemail, and then we'll talk about it. Hi, everyone at the Mestizo Podcast. Thank you so much for the great work you've done this season and throughout in educating and bringing to light um, what it means to live life on the hyphen. My name is Hugo Perez. I am a first-generation Boricua, born in Puerto Rico, raised for the most part in Chicago. And I have a question for you. What do I do in today's day and age with the fact that I am Caramelo? I am light-skinned Latino. So in the context of all the conversations that I, have, I hear around me, I'm struggling because I don't identify as an Afro-Latino. I don't look like an Afro-Latino, but I'm not light enough to be a Blanquito or uh, of the white culture. I'm Caramelo. I'm in between. So often I have a challenge fitting on either side because if I don't go one way too far in my Afro-Caribbean roots, I get criticized. If I go too far on the other side, I'm being too Blanquito, I get criticized. What do I do about being caramelo? Thank you so much. If that ain't the question that so many Latinos here in the U.S. diaspora, even him, I mean, Hugo said there he's first generation, born on the island, moved here mm -hmm. as a young man. So he, he's not even in the same boat as Ramon. But that tension of being, right, that, that tension is what drove our brother Robert Char Romero to write that book, Brown Church, right? So many are part of the Brown Church that feel que no son ni de aquí, in terms of the African-American experience, ni de allá, of the white experience, but are caught somewhere in this racial between. Uh, it's really interesting to, to hear that voicemail. I think there are some things to unpack, Elizabeth, because he talked about, he, he, he put a little nugget in there. I, I've listened to the voicemail a couple of times, but I found it interesting that he said, in today's day and age, you know, it made me wonder. I, I recently watched In the Heights. Y'all know that interview that the the Root did, excellent interview with John Shu and some of the cast of In the Heights. Uh, that interview that the Root did really, really blew up the conversation about Afro Latino representation in Hollywood. And I think that 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 interview also <laughs> highlighted an old conversation. It's not new. We've had Ariel Aquinas with us on the show. You know, she was doing doctoral research on this almost uh, ten years ago now, right? Uh, but I think it highlights something really, really interesting in terms of when, when he said in today's day and age, I wonder if that conversation about Afro-Latinidad has, has elevated a tension for, for Hugo that maybe he hadn't felt before. 
I say that because, you know, that that conversation about In the Heights is really complex. Have you seen the movie, by the way, Elizabeth? Not yet. Not yet. Excellent movie. Te la recomiendo. Excellent movie. But it makes things complicated because the lay de ejemplo, my family, uh, my dad's side, they moved to New York City in 1951, uh, somewhere at the end of 51, early 52, somewhere in between there. That was and the it, first big wave. First big wave, yep. Operation Bootstrap. You know, they pushed a lot mm -hmm. of Puerto Ricans to uh, New York City. They bounced around some tenement houses in, in uh, Manhattan for a little while, and they finally landed in an apartment in Washington Heights, believe it or not. So, so I've got some connection to that film. And one of the struggles that some of my family members have raised is since arriving and living their lives in the cities of the U.S., and they, they, they've since left, most of them have since left New York City. There's still a small pocket there, but most have left. They've gone on to Detroit, which is where I was born, Jersey, someone off to California. I've been all over the place. But in mm -hmm. the cities of the U.S., all of my family, light skin, dark skin, caramelo, to use Hugo's word, all of them have been racialized as black. And this is where the conversation gets really, really confusing and really, really complicated. Because he, for those of us diaspora who have been here in the U.S., especially Puerto Ricans who started their journey on the East Coast, many of us have been racialized black. I, for as long as I can remember, when I go on a demographic census and list what race I am on a questionnaire, I list as black. I've done that for as long as I can remember. But I am, if we're going to use that skin color thing, I'm closer to Caramelo than anything else, right? And I think that this, this conversation about Afro-Latino definition of who is Afro-Latino or Afro-Descendiente, right? Of who is um, white passing, if we want to use that language that I've seen on Twitter and other places. I think that conversation has gotten really, really messy because there's a lot of moving variables. You know, people bring up Univision y Telemundo as other examples of Hollywood, white whitewashing, Latino representation. But, you know, one thing that I've, I've been wondering about is there is a difference between who Telemundo and Univision is targeting and who In the Heights is targeting. In the Heights is about a diaspora experience for diaspora. Univision y Telemundo are also for that in some ways, but very much for an immigrant generation that comes with certain... Um, values, worldviews, ways of understanding and being. And ways of understanding race. And ways of understanding race that aren't exactly... Colonized understandings of race. That's right. So, so I think we need to unpack and tease out some of these things to make sense of where someone like Ugo might, uh, might land, might be. I don't know. What do you think? Let's do that. But let me tell you an interesting story. <clears throat> In the 1950s, that first wave that started coming in, 47 and on, Latinos, um, and especially Puerto Ricans, were always designated as being white. My birth certificate says that I'm white. It says that my mother's white. It says that my father's white. Okay? We were Puerto Ricans. But those are the only designations at the time. Anybody who was Puerto Rican was designated as white, and you could be, you could be very dark-skinned, and they would still put down white on your ID. So a friend of mine of ours was a merchant marine. And he gets off his boat and he's trying to save all his little pennies, you know, for his family. He's got 10 kids. Okay. So he gets off his boat and he's walking. He's walking home. He's a very dark skinned, very dark skinned Puerto Rican man. Okay. And so anyone who looks at him is going to say, well, he's African American. 
this is pre-civil rights. So he's walking in the wrong neighborhood and he doesn't know it, right? He didn't want to spend his money taking the subway. He just decided to walk. And so he's walking and he gets arrested. And they arrest him and they tell him that he shouldn't be walking there. And he doesn't understand why. So they take him to Encuartel, right? They take him down to the headquarters and they ask for his ID. And his ID from his job says that he's white. When they're looking at him, he's very, very dark-skinned. So they figured that he robbed someone's wallet because that's not what he is. He's not white. So they thought that he robbed somebody's wallet, okay? So now he's in bigger trouble than he thought. So he's saying, that's my ID. That's the only ID I have. My, my job gave me that ID, okay? I don't know what it says. It's just, it's, this is who I am. This is just, you know, who I am. And he's trying to explain that he's Puerto Rican. Okay, and that, you know, this is what all Puerto Ricans receive in their ID. And, you know, the cops don't know any better. So finally, they let him make his one phone call and he calls his family. And of course, you know, the whole family comes, his wife and his 10 kids show up. And all of them look so different. Okay, you want to take every range that there could be from a, a, a white passing Latino all the way to an Afro-Caribbean Latino. You want to take every single color in between. You know, we're talking about red hair, really, really curly with green eyes. We're talking about, okay, you just take the whole gamut of what it is. All in one family, right? All in one family. And so they said to him, who are all these people? He said, this is my children, my children. And he goes, well, how many wives have you had? And he says, one wife, this is my wife here. This is my wife. And they're looking at all of this gamut of people. They couldn't figure out what to do with that. So they just sent him home and told him not to walk there again. That's the best they could do because they were so confused, okay? So that's, you know, that's, that's where it begins for us, okay? That's where it begins for us. It's never been simple. I think of on our episode, More Complicated Mix, Dr. Nathan Cartagena. Right. You mentioned that Puerto Ricans were racialized as white. Not all. Right. Because Nathan Cartagena, New Jersey. Right. He was in New Jersey. He was racialized black. And, that, you know, I already mentioned my family. Right. And so this this is not simple. This is not simple. And I think we need to tease out th this conversation about Afro Latinidad is live. It's also old. I don't want to say it's a new conversation. I'm not here pretending that it's a new conversation, but it is a live conversation. Live in the sense that it's it's got it's ongoing. It's ongoing, exactly. And I think we need to unpack it. But I think our brother Ugo, uh, look, if if you're feeling that dissonance of, hey, wait a minute, I've never been white passing in my life, or uh, you know, what is this that all of a sudden I'm being treated as a as a light skinned Latino? You know, brother, I, I think you need to remember, right, that that the Lord made you that way on purpose, right? And that uh that if there if there's someone that's calling you to account. Tell them your story. Invite them into your story. I, I know Elizabeth has mentioned that to me in the past. Invite them into your story. Elizabeth, you want to say anything else to encourage our brother? Brother Ugo, you are brown, bright, and beautiful. Be yourself. Be yourself because all of us, the best that we could do in the midst, in the midst of all of this politicized mix is to be ourselves, to make a definition for who we are, who we know ourselves to be created in God. God is the I am God. Show the I amness of who you are and you will honor God. 
And that's what we need in this world. Amen. Hey, we have another question that's related to this in some ways, but it's actually about children. So I want to read this question that we got, Elizabeth. We got this from Debbie Campos. She's from Grand Rapids, Michigan. She wrote this. What are some practices, tips that can bridge the cultural worship differences in a home between parents and kids? She adds, specifically, how to have conversations about cultural difference in church, dress, music, etc., or choosing to attend Spanish church to tend to a pa the parents' preferences or an American church to tend to the children's preferences. How do we do that? How do we have this conversation? I think this relates to uh, what Brother Hugo mentioned because we are having this conversation. We need to continue having this conversation. We need to help make sense of this for not just ourselves, but even our children. Elizabeth, what do you have advice as advice for Nuestra Hermana Campos? Well, as a mother and now a grandmother, right? I use the uh, time where we have dinner or whatever meal it is, a snack, what have you, as a time to tell stories. And I would tell my children different stories about different things. And I would help them to, I'd ask them, you know, to think too, because, you know, children think. We don't have to tell them everything. Children think too. And I would say, what are the things that we can honor from this story? What are the values that we see? And we would talk about that. And then we would talk about how it is that we can, in our everyday life, honor this piece or honor that piece. And I would take my children, and my husband's African-American, I'm Puerto Rican. I would take my children to both churches. There were days when we would go to an African-American church, you know, certain um, days of the month, certain Sundays of the month. And then there were certain Sundays of the month that we would go to a Puerto Rican church. As they became older, they were teenagers. I took them to different houses of worship so that they would understand that people worship in different ways, even within the Christian tradition, right? And then I took them to interfaith experiences so that we can have a larger and larger experience as we grow up. And that the most important thing in such a diverse world is for us to learn to honor and to value others. And as we did that, they came to an appreciation of others and of themselves. And every time that you, that you go in and you have that experience, talk about it. What did you see today? What, you know, what, what, uh, what's your preference? What may not be your preference, but you understand why it's their preference, right? Have those conversations because they are important. And don't, don't, um, sometimes it's, we, we like to like stay in one place, but actually we were known by different communities and we had a greater richness because we were known by different communities. Um, you know, we would walk into one community and it would be all in Spanish. And my daughter, who's a musician, she learned to play the tambourine in the Hispanic church. And she learned to play the tambourine in the African-American church, which plays on a different beat. And she figured that out very quickly. She was five and she figured that out. Are we talking about Evangelina? Yes. Oh, who we've had on the show. Yeah. So she yes, learned to play on two beats. On she learned to play in two beats. She was five, brother. That's when I knew the girl had to be a musician because she figured out that it was on a different beat, right? And then she figured out how the songs went. They were different songs. And she sang her first solo in the African-American choir of the children. And I was amazed listening to her sing because she was like downright gospel, you know? 
when you're burning down with the cares of life. And I'm like, oh my God, who is this girl singing? Right? <laughs> she just like, she figured it out there. And then she would come and she would sing, you know, the coritos and so forth in the Latina um, tradition in a whole other way. And so children can pick up from both. So don't do an either or, do a both and. That's what's yeah. wonderful about being second generation and about dealing with our diversity. Let's let's flesh it all out. Let's you know honor the different parts of all of what that diversity means by allowing our children to have these different experiences in different communities. Yeah, two words from me on that. First, what you said, Elizabeth, uh, that that kind of pilgrimage between places. It reminds me of what Karen Figueroa talked about on the first season of the podcast. Remember, mm -hmm. she said that the, the distance between two people can be solved in a story. That's not my quote. That's hers. I think it's a brilliant thing. It's, I think, one of it my is. favorite things that has been said on the show. The distance between two people can be can be closed with a story. And and she talked about how she used to take her children, still does, I imagine. She used to take them on, essentially on pilgrimage back to where she's from, back to her home country. I don't, I don't want to misspeak. Uh, I don't remember El where Salvador. she's from. El Salvador. She would take them to El Salvador as, as a way of inviting them into her story. So, so I think to your point of taking them to the different churches is doing both instead of choosing one or the other. That's what Karen did. And, and it worked marvelously to, to bring that wonder, that, that desire for, that appetite for, that those parts of their cultural identity to her children. On the other hand, let me also say this, I think I say this as a child of parents who tried that. I say, be prepared for it to also look different, right? I'm not Puerto Rican in entirely the same ways that my parents would have. I'm not Puerto Rican in ways that make my mom happy, right? In some ways, there's certain parts of me that are different than what she would have assumed, anticipated, maybe even wanted. I think uh, as parents, we have to be okay. I say this also as one who deeply wants to have children who are, you know, super Puerto Rican, et cetera, et cetera. I am having to come with grip to grips as I head toward marriage here in two weeks. Shout out to my fiance, Kelly. But as I head toward marriage, we, Kelly and I have been talking about, I have to sort out the fact that if the Lord allows me to have kids, they too will look different than me. Not just physically, but they will have a different kind of Latinidad, Puerto Ricanness than the one that I have, and they will they will give shape to that in ways that I can't imagine. Mm -hmm. Very true, very true. Each generation gets that as a privilege, and we have to open the way for them. But what are the values that we want them to have? That's the piece. Yeah, you know, going back to Ugo's comment because these two things to me are connected. I think something's happening that we haven't named as theologians or historians. I think there's something that's actually happening. You know, we talked about Puerto Ricans showing up in the 50s before the civil rights movement. And we talked at the first episode of the season when we were laying out the history of how we even got to where we are with our racial complexity. We talked about how in the 60s, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Guatemalans, they, they all gathered together under that moniker Hispanic, right? So that they could have... Uh, access to some political power rights that, that, that were theirs, right? So they, they homogenized on purpose on some level. I think today, today, I think we're actually doing the opposite for similar reasons, right? For, for the reasons of political power or, or recognition, I think we're actually trying to name distinction and difference, diversity. I think that's what is pushing the Afro-Latino conversation. I think that's a good thing. 
right? It, it's a good thing to honor and remember that in the 60s when Latinos homogenized or they said we're going to be one together and we're going to ignore some of our differences, they did that so that they could have certain rights. And I think today as we distinguish, we're distinguishing so that there might be some representation or acknowledgement of, of the diversity in the room as we're trying to, to gain power. Why do I say that? Because I think that that has to be also true for generations. It has to be okay that certain generations have distinction or difference. What do you think, Elizabeth? We're having these conversations in different times, right? So that's why I named the time in which that first story that I told was taking place. It was a, a whole other understanding and uh, political definitions of things were done differently in this country. Now, we're having a very different conversation. And there are parts, and, and we're living two conversations, whether we know it or not. We're living the conversation that takes place here, and we're living the conversation that takes place in our countries of origin, even though we may not have even been born there. <laughs> but we're living those conversations too, because our peoples are having those conversations, right? Our, our, um, our first generation is, is living that conversation. And so we find ourselves in the mix of the different conversations. And in our countries of origin, what's taking place is that parts of our history that we would hide, and, and many times that part of the history that we would hide was the Afro-Latinidad. Yes. And so no longer is that being hidden, but that's coming to full light. And there's the history is being written now by the people who are Afro-Latino themselves. And so that's being written there. And then you have an awareness of race and how we, we um, fall into the conversation that's being had here. So you have those two pieces taking place, whether we know it or not, they're really taking place uh, in us and around us. Yeah. And, and they're encountering each other. Yeah, that, that's important to name. We, we should decenter the US on some level, right? There's a conversation happening uh, con los caribeños, nuestros hermanos en la isla, and Latin America, that there's some things happening, some questions being asked there that are not the same as the questions that are here, but they're interfacing. Those questions yes, are, are interfacing. There's some dialogue there. And perhaps sometimes we in the U.S. aren't listening well to what's happening to our brothers and sisters uh, abroad, if we can say that, uh, given our, where we are. But, uh, but I think that that interface is important. We're going to have to keep unpacking that going forward. I think one way to unpack it is is the way that um, you started. You started with uh, your rapero self, um, and music <laughs> is telling that story, right? Because yeah. we are uncovering, we are uncovering the Afro Latino music um, that used to be hidden in the in the little callejones somewhere, right? And the food, and so we're bringing that out now, and we're yeah. honoring it. Yeah. So we're, we're hearing that in our, in our music. And then, of course, you just mentioned in the Heights, and we're, we're hearing it in the music there, too. Absolutely. Yeah, also a quick shout-out if you want a documentary on this. Black in Latin America is a PBS documentary. It's excellent. And yes. it, helps to, it helps to paint that picture of what happened in the Caribbean and what happened in Latin America related to our Black brothers and sisters, at least the ones in, in our countries of origin. It's, it's, worth, it's worth the watch. It's an important watch. It for surely is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, let's continue here to our next question because our sister 
uh, Ilcia Muñiz from Birmingham, Alabama. Now she's in a different situation than Debbie. Debbie mentioned that she was going, she was having that tension to choose between the Spanish speaking church that fits her needs as a parent or the American white or English speaking church that fits the needs of her children. Ilcia, she's in a multi-ethnic church and she defines it this way, white pastors with diverse congregants. She has, she has this question for us. She says, Although at this point there are more Latino congregants than whites, I find myself missing certain aspects of the Latino church. It has even come up as a question about whether I truly feel called to a multi-ethnic ministry. I don't see myself going back to my Latina church for several reasons, but most importantly because of the issues that are important to me, racism, immigration, etc. Those aren't addressed in the Latina church where I'm from. Is this feeling that I'm having normal? And how can I create the atmosphere that I'm missing here at the church I'm in now? Elizabeth, what do you think? Well, that's a complex situation. I think that what happens in many multicultural churches or multi-ethnic churches, and let's put that in quotes, is that when they are run by our white brothers and sisters, while they may be inclusive of who comes in, and they may even be a majority of people who are not white in that church. If it's being run white, then that's going to make a difference in terms of the, the um, ethos of the church, which is what I think that she's feeling, that she's missing, right? The ethos of the church. So first she has to ask herself, you know, what, what does uh, multi-ethnic mean to her? Um, what is it that she can put her finger on that's really, really missing for her. Um, probably she's not feeling the uh, theological piece of the first generation church. And that's why she moved over here. What are the things that she decided to negotiate in the process? Um, that's important. But you know, there are five different parts of the ministry of a church. And in each one of those, you have to ask yourself, how is it that you bring the diversity into each one of those? So there's the fellowship of the church. And you have to be intentional about these things. Otherwise, like I said, it's just going to be, you know, a lot of different people put together, but it's being run by a majority culture. So you have to be intentional about being multicultural. Okay? It's not just, you know, oh, here we are, all of all us mixed together. You have to be intentional. Um, when you're mixing a lot of a lot of uh, foods together, when you're cooking, you have to be intentional about having the right seasoning that's going to pull all the flavors together. Okay, so you have to be intentional about what you're doing in the fellowship. You have to be intentional about how you teach and preach, the styles and and uh, the topics and so forth. Um, are these issues being brought up in your teaching and preaching? It's all, they're important. You can't gloss over them because you're just going to be all meshed together. And what keeps you together is the fact that you don't talk about it. That can't be the issue, right? Then you have how it is that we serve, how it is that we serve others. So we got to talk about values and so forth. Then you have how it is that we do social justice together. And we have to talk about um, the face that we give to our prophetic ministry. And the face that we give to our prophetic ministry, um, if we're going to be Latinos about it, it cannot be that the pastor is the only one who gives the face to this. 
It has to be a communal, right? The church is a community. There has to be a congregational face that we give to this. And so uh, there has to be a communication about what we're doing to uh, change laws and to change structures in the community. And then of course the worship, right? The worship also has to, um, you, have to you have to be intentional about what you are bringing together in that worship. And it's not easy, but you have to be intentional about all of those different pieces. But you know, you have to ask yourself, what are, who is running what? Because if a church is truly multicultural, you have to have a leadership that's multicultural, not just a congregation, not just people in, in the pews, but everything about the church has to be done in a multicultural way. I think it's important to name that. She talks about when she defined multi-ethnic in her question, she said white leadership and then multi-ethnic congregation. To your point, I think we need to think about who's in leadership. You know, we, we've talked about that quite a bit this season. We've talked with Sandra Maria Van Opsel. Sandra, she talked she about, yeah, she talked about, hey, decentering that leadership to, to say, hey, we're not going to put whiteness at the center. And our brother Jennings, we have to give him all the credit in the world. He, he also did a great job of naming for us, right? That he called it a kind of figure eight where you, you go into the center and right back out and then back into the center and right back out. And you kind of bounce in and out, in and out. And, and of course, that center, we would say, Jennings didn't say this, but we would say that center is us getting uh, proximity to Jesus and then inviting someone else to that proximity and letting them have the room and then going back and forth and that kind of shared hospitality and shared love for one another as we reflect on worship and get closer and closer to Christ together. But but to your point, I think decentering the white leadership is one part of it. You name several categories, hospitality, justice. The other thing I'll say, it's interesting that in her question, she says she doesn't feel like she can go back to La Iglesia Latina either. Because it isn't addressing, to your point about social justice, it's not addressing the issues of social justice that are important to her. You know, I can't say right now, I can't say right now, but I can say there is a project in the works at World Outspoken. There's a project in the works. I can't say much more than this. There's a project in the works that asks the question, what would a church look like, a bicultural church, a church that, que ni de aquí ni de allá, right, that, that sort of in-between church. What would a church look like if it was, in fact, a bicultural church led by Latinos or working with Latinos and others who care about justice issues, who want to honor the traditions that they're from, but are also intercultural in ways that allow them to interact beyond the worlds that they're from? I can't say more, but I, uh, Hermana Muñiz, we have something in the works that I think is going to give you some, some, a window into. What does that church look like? What kind of church is that? What are the issues that a church like that might face? What are the problems that that church might encounter? Because I think you're needing to kind of see an example. And we, we have something coming. So, uh, Elizabeth, I wonder if we can go to some of the other questions, because that one is one that, that we have an answer for coming very, very soon. But I wonder if we can answer questions from our brother, Carlos Nava. He's from Union City, New Jersey. He, speaking of pastors and leadership, he says, in the podcast episode with Pastor Charlie Dates and Eric Rivera, uh, they mentioned Black preachers in history that should be known. The question is, who are some Latino, um, Latin American preachers that we should be listening to? Elizabeth, you have a few that you had mentioned, maybe three or four, and then I have a couple that I want to mention, but let's hear first from you. Are you going to mention some of the historical people? 
I will. I'll mention some of the historical ones. So you start can with the history. Your... Start with the history. Go ahead. All right. So in terms of historical folk, I think you should go back. Now you're gonna have to read his books that he's passed away, but uh, Cuban American or actually Cuban migrant immigrant, uh, Pastor Cecilio Arastia. He's oh one of the, yeah. He's one of the major writers on preaching. Ooh. Deeply influenced good. preaching. Elizabeth, you want to say more about his history? You, uh, because of Orlando Costas, you have some engagement with Arrastia that I don't. Arrastia was the kind of preacher that everybody wanted to hear because he um, used story in such a powerful way. And he was a man who was well-read. He read a lot of literature and he would bring images, really great images from that literature. Have you heard him, by the way? Have you heard him preach? I'm old enough, bro. Yes. My bad. I was trying to find a way to ask that question without being rude, but go ahead. No, no, no. I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. I don't feel bad about being, about, you know, being older than you, bro. You know, I'm twice your age. I'm okay with that. <laughs> no, yes. I remember him. I remember him. I remember even as a child hearing him preach. And you know how kids are. They move around and stuff. And I was one of these electric kids, right? And I moved around a lot. My mother used to bring little lifesavers. And if she gave you the first lifesaver, it meant this is a warning, you know? If she had to, if she had to give you a look after the lifesaver, that meant wait till you get home. And I didn't want to get to that point. But <laughs> but Cecilia Arastia was a preacher that I listened to as a kid. I was mesmerized by his stories. And it's interesting because he had a tremendous command of the Spanish vocabulary. Since he was a man who read a lot of literature, he used words from that literature, right? To describe things and so forth. And I remember I learned a lot of Spanish by listening to those words. You know, it was, it was phenomenal. He was poetic. He was poetic and he was powerful. And people would just, I mean, you were mesmerized by him. It was wonderful. That, that was Arastia. And he was relevant. And I mean, the man could preach. The man could preach. Yeah, I've only read some of his literature. And you, you talk about stories. He has a whole thing about how the preacher es un hablador. Uno que da relatos. One who gives a story and invites people to, to open it, enter into that story. It's very, it's very record if you're going to get all academic about it. But it's, uh, it's about entering the story of the scriptures as people who are invited to be a part of that story incredible stuff if you're interested in the art of preaching arastia is one you should know Absolutely. let me mention a couple quick ones here because uh, i'm looking at the time here but i, I want to say a couple that are important that i think you should know about um, i think speaking of kind of learning about preaching i want to give sh a shout out to dr jared alcantara he wrote a book called the practices of Cre christian preaching Essentials for Effective Proclamation. It's written in English, and you can also find it in Spanish. He's a professor out at Truett Seminary in Texas, a good brother. I know him. I've met him. We've talked. Uh, I recommend him. He's uh, Elizabeth, weren't you on his dissertation panel? I was. He is, he is, his family's from Honduras, and he is second generation. And um, the, both the books are under the same publisher, so it's, yeah. it's easy to find it. Uh, well find. worth your while. I read the book myself, and it's not your usual, you know, how-to preaching book. It's about uh, forming, forming your spirituality as a preacher. So it's a very good book. Do, yeah. Do look at that. 
And then I got one more book if we're doing recommendations here for preachers. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where we give you some homework. But uh, I got two other preachers I want you to know about. Up and coming preacher who actually is working for World Outspoken this year. He's one of our HTI interns, Kerwin Rodriguez. You can find several of his sermons online. Just pull them up on YouTube. Dominicano, uh, well-read interested in the written word. He loves writing and crafting his sermon quite carefully. And you should also know another one that you can find his books, that there are two uh, Argentinos brothers. One is a writer. He, he writes academically. The other is very evangelistic. It's something that's important to him. But I'll give you the writer first. Osvaldo Motesi wrote a book called Predicación y Misión, Una Perspectiva Pastoral. I don't know if there's an English version of this book. I've read it. It's great. It's, uh, it's regarding the, the act of preaching and how it changes the way that we do mission. So he, he's the writer among the two brothers. Now, the, mm -hmm. the evangelist of the two, his name is Evangelista Alberto Motesi. Both of them are Argentinos, uh, powerful, powerful preachers. I've actually listened to Osvaldo Motesi preach. He's one of those guys that, that makes you shake in your seat where you go, oh, I might, I might fall out of my chair here if this man keeps going. Brilliant, brilliant preacher. They're both very good. They're both very good. Absolutely. Um, so let me mention some women. You've mentioned uh, men. Please. Let me mention some women that you can follow today. Miriam Mendez. She is um, the executive minister of the American Baptist Churches of New Jersey. She is the executive minister. And she's an excellent preacher. Uh, you can follow her. You can also uh, follow the preaching of Karen Hernandez, and she is in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and, and both of these sisters, both of these sisters are currently in pastoral ministry, and I think that's yes. important. The people yes, that I've mentioned are either pastoral ministry. That's important. The people I mentioned were all scholarly preachers, right? But we're talking about pastors, and that's important. Mm -hmm. Then you have Dorlimar Lebron, and Dorlimar is uh, she's in Harlem, she's in New York. Uh, she has a wonderful outreach ministry to the community. So she's not just somebody who talks about something. She's about somebody who, as a pastor, is out there doing it. She drives a trailer and she fills it with food and brings it to the church. And she's got a feeding ministry. It's just wonderful. So Dorlimar Lebron is another person that you would definitely want to be hearing as a female preacher. Um, an up and coming preacher, I would say, is Antonio Vargas in Connecticut. Young, Brother he's not preach. there yet. Oh, yeah, yeah he can. can preach. Very young, not even 30 yet, but definitely worth you listening to. Let, let me say to the audience, he was a part of our Mestizo webinar series. If you don't know, in, in conjunction with the seasons of the Mestizo podcast, we're also now doing a webinar series that you can register for. He was one of our guest speakers, brought the house down, killed it. You have Yolanda Eden uh, from Catedral del Pueblo, more conservative, uh, first generation. And then you have Moises Sandoval, who is a um, um, pastor as well. He's got a, a large church, what's called a mega church. He's another uh, preacher. You have Grisel Medina from the Evangelical Covenant Church. You can follow her. She's on Twitter and others. Um, and then you have Benjamin Torres in Connecticut. And you want to talk about a brother who really did a great transition with his church from first to second generation. This is the brother. He really did it in some great ways, through the word, just wonderful, wonderful, using a lot of pageantry. He's the kind of person who dresses up and stuff, you know, according to the different <laughs> characters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to go and see him preach, not just hear him preach. 
You I've only done him? that. I've only done that once in my life, where I, where I played a character in the sermon. Uh, I'll tell this quick story, and then let, let's also talk book recommendations because someone asked about book recommendations. But mm-hmm. I once for a church, they asked me to preach Exodus chapter eleven. No, sorry, it was Exodus chapter thirteen, if I'm not mistaken. It was a. It was about a lot of the feasts. It was the feast celebration. And I was like, "Dios mío, cómo se predica esto? Am I supposed to preach through all these instructions? What am I supposed to do?" So I was reading, doing my study, you know, the whole thing, and look at some commentaries, and I realized that one of those feasts we only get three occurrences of it. One of the the, the Passover feast we only get three occurrences of it in the Old Testament. I thought, okay, well, let, let's look at this. One of the occurrences was right after Joshua took the people of Israel into the promised land so i thought okay speaking of you know first generation second generation you remember joshua that's la otra generacion that's the next generation so he is practicing something that those kids they were not there in egypt or if they were they were very young they didn't remember right and so what i did was is i made up a character called him ben which is the hebrew word for son and i went up there on a sunday morning and i played the character of ben having to learn the ritual of what it means to celebrate Passover and to enter the story of God's redemption from Israel. Most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. I'm not sure I want to do it again. But also, one of the times I've most learned the scriptures because I had to learn what it meant to be a kind of diaspora child who entered the promised land, who didn't know the ritual or why it was celebrated. I mean, it was close to home. It was it was my story on some level. And so I it was it was fun, compelling, convicting to enter the story that way. You just mentioned something really powerful and it's ritual. I won't go all into it, but we got to talk about ritual because um, still in the Jewish community, um, they understand that it's a child who needs to ask the, the questions about the ritual that's taking place. And at the Passover, it's a child who asks, why do we do this? So if you ever do, it is. So if, if you ever have a chance, talk about, you know, talk about interfaith stuff to participate of a, um, a, a cedar, a, a Passover a cedar, a which is a supper. Yeah. Yep. You you want to be you want to be there, and you want to uh, see how the child plays a very prominent role, so that it's the teaching of the next generation about what's happening. Isn't that interesting? I I've been to one, and I, I've had to learn that experience that way. Yeah. So let's like, let's get to the last question here, and with this one, we'll wrap up the show. Our brother Asia Torres, he's in Atlanta, Georgia. He he called in, and he asked us this. Hey, what's going on, guys? My name is Horacio Torres. I'm not a. I'm calling from Atlanta, Georgia. My love the show. Uh, love the Mestizo podcast. My question is to you guys. I love to read. I'm a big reader. Um, what are some Latin brothers or sisters that you guys recommend we read? Uh, I got the uh, the future of the Latino church. I got Justo Gonzalez books, but what other authors do you guys recommend or is a must read for for uh, second gen Hispanics out here in uh, in the U.S.? Thank you, guys. God bless. And I uh, can't wait to hear your response. Peace. I got to apologize. His brother was Horacio. I got the name wrong. I put it down wrong in my notes. But shout out to Horacio Torres for that question. Elizabeth, you want to go quickly through your through your recommendations? Let's both give five. And here's what we're going to do. Don't worry if you don't remember who the who the authors are. We're going to include in our show notes 
uh, a link to a page, or actually we might put up the page a few days later, but we'll put up a page where we have our recommendations for those of you that are interested. So go ahead, Elizabeth. Okay, well, start with introducing Latinx theologies, and that's by Miguel de la Torre and Edwin Aponte, introducing Latinx theologies, and you'll have um, an anthology. Then you want to be looking at um, the Brown Church by our brother Roberto Ch uh, Chao uh, Romero, whom we um, had as a part of our first season. You want to look at Latina Evangelicas. Um, that will definitely show you a, um, a Latina perspective on theology. I think that you're really going to enjoy it. It's three women who uh, author the book together and they write it. They, they interweave with one another really well. You want to be looking at um, New Horizons in Hispanic Latino Theology by Benjamin Valentin. And you want to look at something a little older, but which is really a powerful piece. And a lot of people refer to it as they do theology today. And that is Orlando Costa's book called Christ Outside the Gate. And then the last book that I want to recommend is because Many times we don't read our Catholic brothers and sisters and Latino theology includes our Catholic brothers and sisters. I would look yeah. at Caminemos con Jesus by uh, Roberto Goizueta. Uh, it is written in English, um, but he speaks about acompañamiento, which is also uh, a very important aspect of Latino theology, which whether you're Protestant or Catholic, a lot of people refer to. So that will give you some of the basic pieces that you need as you continue your reading. Yeah, quick shout out to, to Catholic theology. We should read it. One, speaking of Catholic theologians, I didn't intend to include this, but I'm going to say it. Jesus the Liberator by John Sobrino. Brilliant book. Really, really helped to shape mm -hmm. some of the things that I've been thinking about and considering. I'm going to give a quick shout out to our brother, Dr. Juan Carmona. He uh, was from Union. He actually taught in an Asian seminary overseas. I forget which one, but he taught in an Asian seminary. Actually, the publisher of this, if I could read the characters, I'll tell you what university it is, but the publisher of the book was the seminary itself. It's called The Puerto Rican Diaspora, A Model Theology. Uh, I've been reading it over the last few weeks. Excellent book. It's a good overview of some of the history. We talked about the 1950s and what happened to Puerto Ricans with Operation Bootstrap. This book really gets into that. Um, I showed you some of my rap music. I have to give a shout out to the owner of the label that I was a part of. You know, I was a part of a ministry called One Spirit Ministries. Travi Joe was the rapper and owner of the label. He went through cancer in 2019. Almost died. My brother almost died. It was quite the story. He just recently published his testimony in English and in Spanish. I'll tell you the title in Spanish. 51 Días El Regalo Del Cancer. It, uh, it's a remarkable story. It's not academic, but some stories don't need to be academic. Sometimes we just need to hear the testimonies of what God has done among our people. So, so I'd recommend that one. The, the other one that I'd recommend is, if you haven't already, speaking of people that have passed or have, have dealt with death, uh, our, our, brother, um, our brother René Padilla just recently passed away just a couple months ago. His book, Mission Between the Times. It's a set of essays, uh, important set of essays to read. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised as you read that book how relevant to today it is. And many of the essays were written in the 70s. You'll read it and you go, how is this guy not talking about today? How is it possible that he's not talking about today? 
But René Padilla, brilliant scholar and theologian. And then last, tenemos que hablar de la, de la hermana que está aquí en casa, the one that's with us. There is a book that's coming out next month. Am I right about that, Elizabeth? Next month? The end of August. The end of August. But the Spanish There's version a... is out already. The Span oh, I didn't know that. The Spanish version is already out. The book is called Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Educations by no one else but, of course, our sister, Doctora Elizabeth Conde Frazier. You know what? I'm just going to read you what I wrote. You're going to find that on the back I write the little uh, review or recommendation of the book. I read it. Here's what I said. I'm not even going to, to, uh, to change it because this is exactly how I felt. I said, Doctora Conde Frazier makes good on the title of her book by accomplishing the near impossible. Atando Cabos is a revealing synthesis of many historical, social, and theological underpinnings that shape the missional identity of the Latinx Protestant tradition in the U.S. She names unfamiliar historical figures and events and demonstrates how these produce a, re a reductive curriculum for theological education. Dr. Conde Frazier then presents a richly theological vision for expanding modes of education rooted in the Latinx tradition. This book is brilliant, y'all, and when it comes out, we should support our sister because it's important to read how the Latinx church is continuing to educate and grow and expand the ministry of the church. So shout out to our sister. We're going to do a bonus episode later in the fall where we interview Elizabeth about her book. So if you haven't already, send us some questions. Get the book, take your notes, and then let's get some questions in to our sister about the, uh, about the book. Elizabeth, do you want to say anything about Atando Cabos? Just thank you. It's a humbling moment. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. Um, I'm glad that you read it. I'm glad that uh, you thought the things that you just said. You're an honest man, so I'm going to believe you. Um, you're not one to flatter, so thank you so very much. Um, I wrote that book, Going Through a Fire and Everything Else. <clears throat> it took me a little bit. It's well worth it. the read. Yeah, and I mean every word I said. It, it's an important read. That There are times where I go, I didn't know this history. And I love it when when that kind of unveiling happens where I didn't know the history. And then I learned something about my own church tradition and how what I love about your book, especially, is how it expands and says, this is how we might go forward to give a vision for how we might go forward. And I think that's really important. You know, speaking of going forward, this is the last episode of the season for season two of the Mestizo podcast. We're going to be taking a break for a while. Uh, we'll come back again uh, next spring. But uh, we're going to take a break. Elizabeth needs the rest. I need the rest. We're both busy people. I'm You're going to be starting doctoral work. I'm going to be starting doctoral work. I'm getting married, y'all. Shout out to the Lord. He, he fashioned a woman who would have patience for this young man. And so really grateful to God for blessing me that way. I'm getting married, y'all. I, I just need a break. We need a break. So we're taking a break. But like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, there are a couple ways that you can support the show. You can support it by leaving a review, telling a friend, inviting them to listen to the season, writing in, telling stories about how you engage the show. You can also support the show financially. We ask you to consider doing it. We, we invite you to support as we continue to expand the ministry of what the Mestizo podcast is doing in webinars, in the podcasts. Uh, we're going to be doing some courses that will be launching in the fall. Elizabeth and I are contributing to that as well. So there's a lot going on at World Outspoken. And you can be a part of it by supporting it. So, so feel free to go again, worldoutspoken.com. You can click on the button that says Give Now, and you can support the show. It's a couple ways. Lastly, I'll say this. Speaking of Atando Cabos, 
the uh, the title of Elizabeth's book, you know, tying it's tying loose ends. For those of you that don't know Spanish, atando cabos, tying up loose ends. There are a lot of loose ends to this discussion about the Mestizo Church. Lots of things we haven't talked about yet. We haven't talked about the music of the church. We haven't talked about so many different themes related to immigration and other things. And so we hope to, in future seasons, address that. But in the fall, we have some bonus episodes that should be coming out related to the music specifically. You know, I have a music background. You heard some of the music already. We plan on doing more related to the music of the church. So be looking out in the fall for sudden drops of episodes that are just bonus. They're not attached to any season, just bonus episodes that are related to the topic of music in the church. Elizabeth, you got any final word before we close out the season? No, I've learned tremendously uh, by just having to answer the questions. So I really want to thank our audience. Your questions have taught us. We've had to do research. We've had to um, go deep into our own experiences. And we want to thank you for that. You've kept us honest. And it's just been wonderful sharing with you during these two seasons. Amen. Thank you for joining us in the community. Esto se hace en conjunto, right? And your questions matter. Your questions matter. So thank you for submitting those questions, for being part of our community. And like Elizabeth said, for sharpening us as the host of the show. So on that word, you can follow us at World Outspoken on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and keep the conversation going. You can also check out our other podcasts at World Outspoken, podcasts like Mixed Take, where they engage media. Speaking of In the Heights, they have a couple episodes engaging that. They engage media that's made by bicultural mestizo people. People que no son ni de aquí ni de allá. You can check that out. And there's all sorts of other cool things happening at World Outspoken. Check out some of the stuff that we're doing. That's it. On that note, se acabó. Está todo. Gracias por estar con nosotros, gente.